So the Apostle Paul, when he wrote his first letter to the Corinthians, uses every tool he can think of, rhetorically, theologically, biblically, everything he knows about God, to bring them back to a place where they are a community. He's just before this text has talked about the one body with many members, and then he comes to this. If I speak in the tongues of mortals or of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith so as to move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give away all my possessions and if I hand over my body so that I may boast but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. But as for prophecies, they will come to an end. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will come to an end. But we know only in part, and we prophesy only in part, but when the complete comes, the partial will come to an end. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became an adult, I put an end to childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we will see face to face. Now I know only in part, then I will know fully, even as I have been fully known. And now faith, hope, love, abide, these three, and the greatest of these is love. The word of the Lord. Author Annie Dillard recalls the church of her teenage years growing up in Pittsburgh. Nothing so inevitably blackened my heart, she writes, in the obligatory Sunday at Shadyside Presbyterian Church. The minister's British accent. The hypocrisy of my parents who forced me to go to church even when they did not go. The hypocrisy of the expensive men and women who did go. One of these days, I was just going to plain quit when I figured out how. It was the first Sunday of the month, I remembered, shocked, I would have to sit through communion with its two species, embarrassment and tedium. I had successfully avoided communion for years. From their pews below rose the ushers and elders from Mellon Bank and Trust, etc., all in tailcoats. They worked the crowd smoothly as always. When they collected money, I noticed that they were especially serene. Now with dignity, the elders hoisted the round silver trays which bore communion. They were passed down the pews along with the flat silver platters which bore heaps of soft bread cubes like they were getting ready to stuff a turkey. The the elders and ushers spread swiftly and silently over the marble aisles in discreet pairs, some with the bread trays, some with the grape juice, communicating by eyebrow lift only. 
Soon they reached the balcony where we sat. There our prayers had reached their intense pitch in our hopes not to drop the juice tray. Wasn't all this not absurd? I glanced at Linda sitting beside me. Apparently it was not absurd. She was there praying, arms folded. What would the barefoot Christ, if there had been such a person, think about these things? Grape juice, tailcoats, British vowels, sable stoles. Yet I was alert enough now to feel, despite myself, some faint, thin stream of spirit braiding forward from the pews. It's flawed and fragile rivulets pooled far beyond me at the table. There was no speech. There was no language. The people had been praying, praying to God, just as they had seemed to be praying. There was some spirit in that room at that moment. That was a fact. I didn't know what to do with it. If you uh, go to Google and ask for images of the word communion, you get scores of pictures of communion trays and loaves of bread and wafers and those soft bread cubes and cups and chalices and the little shot glasses. You get all of that. All that is missing are pictures of people. What's left out is community. We have communion a dozen or more times here a year. We are called to be the body of Christ. We are called to be community every single day. Paul spends the entire letter to the Corinthians focused on the Christian community, chastising, pleading, encouraging the Corinthian church to make their broken community whole. The Corinthian Christians are abusing their freedom, they're refusing to share, they're scorning their neighbor's different spiritual gifts, they're boasting about their own gifts, and they're wanting to make their experience of how to connect with God normative for everyone. Other than that, they were a peach of a church you'd really enjoy visiting. 1 Corinthians 13 was written as an urgent full-throated attempt to bring the community of Christians at Corinth back into relationship with God and with one another. How surprised must the Apostle Paul be if he would appear today to discover that this most challenging paragraph about love and community is now consigned for most of our culture to a very individual marriage ceremony and never heard anywhere else. In service of restoring community, Paul describes the challenging, powerful, nourishing, intrusive love of God that draws people together and offers the community everything they're gonna need. This is a love that is not envious or boastful, that acid that eats away at community. It isn't arrogant or rude that brash sound that makes us want to stop listening. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not insist on its own way. It's a vision of unity and harmony that happens 
When no one seeks to gain an advantage, but works on behalf of others. I think most of us, by our points in life, have both a romantic view and a realistic view of community. But we hold out hope, I think, that somehow community can just happen in a serendipitous way that it just can spring up in the most unlikely ways. Among the myriads of stories that were passed around immediately following the attacks on 9-11, none was more fantastic than the story about the escape from the city by the pop culture trifecta of Michael Jackson, Elizabeth Taylor, and Marlon Brando. Elizabeth Taylor and Marlon Brando were at Michael Jackson's sold-out concert at Madison Square Garden the night before on the evening of September 10th. Supposedly, the three of them, all caught in New York on September 11th, rented a car and embarked on a 500-mile road trip to Ohio where the trip finally came to an end when they got separate flights home to California. They made it out of Manhattan just before the bridges and tunnels closed. Michael Jackson was at the wheel of a rented 2001 white Chevy Lumina. He drove with one foot on the gas and one foot on the brake because he wasn't used to driving. Elizabeth Taylor sat beside him clutching her little dog. Marlon Brando was sprawled in the back seat sweating. As they eased onto I-80 West, Brando complained of hunger. KFC, he started chanting, KFC. Finally relenting, they stopped at a KFC near the Ohio border. Each went in wearing some type of disguise. Brando, a pair of Groucho glasses and nose and mustache. Uh, Elizabeth Taylor wore huge sunglasses and a floppy hat. Michael Jackson's disguise was a red kimono, a long blonde wig, a surgical mask, sunglasses, and a black umbrella. I'm sure that worked just fine. But if you remember, in those strange, hard, grieving days after 9-11, everyone was so absorbed with the news they didn't notice this unlikely pair. Getting their sacks of food, the three locked arms, walked solemnly across the parking lot, climbed back into the Lumina, and headed westward. This story was passed all over in the days and weeks after 9-11. Only it's not true. The three indeed found themselves temporarily trapped in Manhattan. Elizabeth Taylor stayed on and did some charity work. Michael Jackson and Marlon Brando got separate flights back to California. But how we would love if it were true. How do we love the image of this strange, quick, who knows how they came together community showing the complexity and diversity in odd and compelling ways. But that vision of community faces hard realities we all know about. Status is the enemy of community. Community is often thwarted by division. There is a university chapel back east. It's an impressive place, Gothic, known for its ascendant worship. If you're ever there on a Sunday for baptism, this is what you see and hear. The minister introduces the baptism and calls the family forward and proceeds to give a resume of each of the parents. 
John and Mary Smith are presenting their daughter for baptism this morning. John has a BA, summa cum laude, from Harvard and a master's and PhD from Columbia. Mary graduated with honors from Stanford and got her MD from Johns Hopkins. They don't mention the titles of their dissertation or their GPA as far as I know. This is not community. This is the world of achievement that we're well acquainted with. This is not the body of Christ. Among the many things that is wrong with this, measuring our status and counting our degrees, is it makes us think we can actually create our own world. It makes us think that we can actually maintain our own life. That's a lie. That's a lie. And Paul knew that. And so he wrote, love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. In many 19th century churches in the South, African Americans were not allowed to form their own formal church So they were part of white churches, but of course they were required to sit in the balcony. On communion Sundays, the elders, all of them white, would serve all the whites on the main floor first. Then the African Americans, under the careful direction and supervision of the ushers, would be allowed down to the main floor to be served by the white elders. Of course, this is a reversal of how they spent almost every day of their lives. This is a profound ambiguity, the kind of disruption that only God's Spirit can bring about as we are called together. At once, there was this powerful reinforcement of the ongoing social system. Those who are first are always first, and those who are last are always last. Everyone has a place, and everyone stays in their place, and yet, This gathering for worship was also a challenge, as it always is, to the current social order. The reversal of white serving blacks, the foretaste of the heavenly banquet where we are all together and Jesus is the host, and a reminder in 1830 or in 2016 that present social arrangements and structures, that which we build our whole life on, are never eternal, and that God is at work, making all things new, challenging and overturning and rearranging and renewing every assumption by which we live with a love from God, which is robust and active and challenging and corrective and intrusive, a love that is patient and kind, a love that never insists on its own way. That love leads us to a community where we end up sitting next to and singing with and praying with a collection of people we don't know or who we don't think we have anything in common or because of the way they think or act or speak or vote or spend money we have in earlier times called them adversary. Because of that love, 
we end up putting aside all our dearly held norms to say nothing of our prejudice and our resentments and our assumptions and, of course, our great fears. That scene from worship in 1830 in a divided South is also a reminder that community doesn't just happen by easing all distinctions of status or even if we eradicate every division. Community is a gift from God. We cannot create it on our own. We are all utterly dependent on God to form relationships to be community. We cannot live without God's abundant nourishment. Sometimes, by God's grace, the church is a place where the community can be discerned in all its complexity and diversity, and we rejoice. Sometimes, just to be honest, the church has been stingy with its means of grace and has served to block rather than to form this kind of community. Make no mistake, God is still at work. God is still, God will not be thwarted in forming God's beloved community and filling us up so we can care and serve. People at St. Martin in the Fields congregation in London felt dismayed and bewildered and betrayed a couple of years ago after they'd worked and worked and worked And then it was announced that the Anglican Church, in spite of all their work, had defeated a motion that would allow women full participation in church and to serve as bishops. We can't recall a moment when we felt so aghast at where we'd come to and what we're doing, wrote their pastor, Sam Wells. He talked about wilderness moments in faith. He talked about pain and discipline in waiting. He talked about how angry it made people in his congregation that progress wasn't made. And then he said this, here I speak to those who are too angry to think straight at the moment. If the church isn't working right now, try the kingdom. Throw yourself into life among the least and the last and the lost and rediscover God there. When the church fails, and let's face it, every church I've been a part of fails a lot. When the church fails, try the kingdom. Trust God. Because God never stops. God will never be thwarted. Even taking the likes of us here at Westlake Hills and turning us in all unlikely ways into the body of Christ. You know, we spend a lot of time in church planning and programming, trying to work hard enough to make the church effective. But community is a gift of God for the people of God. It cannot, in the end, be fenced in or controlled or regulated or managed or created on our own, just as God's grace to do that forming comes to us from all sorts of angles we could never expect or program on our own. A colleague recently recounted, a GPS got us lost three times on our trip over the mountain trying to find the restaurant that our innkeeper said was the best in the whole county. When we finally found the town, 
We realized it wasn't a town at all, but just a couple of homes, a dilapidated general store, a railroad trestle, and one intersection. I drove all the way through to the other end, looking all around, no restaurant, carefully came back, looking left and right, looking up the hillside, nothing, just houses in this rundown general store. But wait, in the window of the store, it had the word restaurant painted on it. Really? The building looked abandoned. Maybe we had just built up our expectations too high. Well, we decided if a kitschy remodeled general store in the middle of nowhere was our only option, maybe the company would be good, we'd have a story to tell, even if the food was just ordinary. Sure enough, we walked in, the walls were lined with reproductions of what they thought that general stores had 100 years ago. The waitress greeted us warmly, led us to our table, then we saw the menu. An eight ounce locally sourced filet with chipotle butter and onions. Venison with kiwi puree and porcini mushrooms. Lobster pot pie. In an old general store in the mountains? Who cooks like that? Who eats like this out here? It was without a doubt, my friend said, the most amazing meal of our entire lives here in this most unlikely of places. On communion Sundays, but on all Sundays, God sets a banquet for us here. God shares a feast with us to nourish us with the mystery of God's presence. And from that nourishment, we are the church. It's God's activity that transcends status games and redeems division. It is God's love that bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, and turns an odd assortment of noisy gongs and clanging cymbals into the body of Christ, into this loving hoping, belonging, believing, faithful, justice-seeking body of Christ that is compelled then because of our experience of community to share that love, to live every day as that community, to act out hope because of that community. And in so doing, serving God's intention of changing the world Amen.